with me to Romans chapter number 5. Romans chapter number 5. Stand with me for our responsive reading. It's on page 6. Romans chapter number 5, verses 1 through 5. I will read the first verse. Congregation will read the second and so on, and we will all say verse number 5. Paul writes, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Thank you and be seated. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again we come to you this morning with humble hearts. Lord, granted to us by you, Lord, that we might hear the word of God. Lord, that we might see the Christ. Lord, that we might know the love that has been given unto us. Lord, that we might in turn give you the praise and the honor and the glory, Lord, that you deserve. And Lord, as our choir has stated, Lord, we are always in debt of praise. Lord, we could praise you all entire day, the entire week, Lord, and still come up vastly short of the praise that is due your name. Lord, we will spend eternity praising your name, but Lord, even then, Lord, it would seem insufficient considering who you are in your being and your person, Lord, and the grace that you have bestowed upon us simply in salvation. Lord, that you have brought the death unto life. Lord, that your name might be praised to your glory. Lord, this morning, Lord, as we come together, Lord, give us understanding and wisdom to the word of God. Lord, allow us, Lord, search our hearts by your spirit. Lord, that we might know where we rejoice and where we do not rejoice. Lord, allow us to examine ourselves, prove ourselves. Lord, as to whether we truly rejoice in our sufferings or not. And Lord, grant us and allow us, Lord, to know and to understand with the wisdom that only the Spirit of God might give, to know the love of God, Lord, and how it has been given, Lord, to us completely and thoroughly. Lord, we ask that by this we might have a certainty, that we might have an assurance, Lord, of the salvation, Lord, that you have secured for us at Calvary. Lord, I pray you would guard my word and guard my thoughts and direct my words and use this stammering tongue, Lord, for your glory this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would save souls. Lord, those that are here this morning, Lord, that are dead and depraved, Lord, having fooled themselves into thinking themselves to be a child of God, but yet they have never believed upon you, never surrendering their life, Lord, we're dependent upon you, Lord, to open up that callous and that dead heart, to breathe life unto that soul, Lord, that they might know where they stand before you. And Lord, drive them, compel them, Lord, unto salvation, unto repentance. In this we pray and ask and beg of you, Lord, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, that he might be glorified. And Lord, it is by his authority, Lord, that we come before your throne. Amen. Amen. Now we have spent time in Romans uh, over the course of uh, my time when I have had the privilege of standing at the pulpit to preach and to teach. And we have been in Romans for quite some time. We went through Romans chapter number 4. And we have just uh, trickled into Romans chapter number 5. Now, I always want to give some context. 
Uh, and you may say, well, I remember this. It wasn't too long ago that you stood here and preached the first verse of Romans uh, chapter 5, and I remember it. I've still got my notes. I want to reiterate it as much as possible. Uh, we learn by reiteration. The more you hear things and the more you see things, the more you become familiar with those things. It's with that same mindset uh, that I told our men this morning to consider your wife. Uh, don't forget her. Get to know her all over again. Uh, at the same moment with the intent of saying to consider Jesus. Uh, we need to consider Jesus. Take the time to intently gaze upon him uh, over and over again. Uh, so we won't forget that we will be encouraged, that we will have a greater understanding and a greater wisdom and a greater knowledge of the Word of God. So I do want to go over again some of the things that we have seen just to draw our minds back to it so we have a good context uh, to the scripture we are going to look at this morning. Now as Paul is writing this, this epistle to the Romans, uh, he has made the declaration that the righteousness of God comes by faith. The righteousness of God comes by faith. He has precluded anyone from achieving the righteousness of God because there is none that is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. We are all worthless. Our hearts, our minds, our will are totally depraved. Uh, we do not seek after God. We speak against God. Our mouths are vile. There is destruction within everything that we do. And now we stand with no fear of God. And as we stand before God, we recognize that we are without excuse. God is expecting an answer and we have nothing to say. Our good works, our righteousness, our uh, rituals, our rights, our heritage, our even knowledge of things does not allow us the righteousness of God. That righteousness must come by faith. And as he proclaims this righteousness by faith, he gives example in Romans chapter number 4, and that example is Abraham, the great patriarch, held in high esteem uh, by Jew and Gentile alike. And Abraham, he states, was granted righteousness, imputed righteousness by faith. He heard the word of God and believed the word of God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he said he would do. When we consider faith, we know that we are believing in God. We are trusting that God is able to do what He said He would do. Regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the conditions, regardless of how we perceive things, in the same way that Abraham knew that his wife was old, Abraham knew that he himself was old, yet he believed God, knowing God was the creator of all things. God was able to make life out of death. He believed God and held his promise. And being fully convinced, regardless of what the condition said, lived his life accordingly. We, being made righteous by faith, we have heard the word of God. And based upon what we can know of God... We read the accounts in Scripture that everything God has said He will do, He has done. And based upon that character of God that we have, that is revealed unto us, we believe God that what He has promised, He will do. That though we are depraved, though we are dead, Christ Himself has paid the sin debt. He is a propitiation for our sins. That he will sanctify us by his spirit. And that we will, as we were predetermined for the foundation of the world, be holy and blameless before him. We hold to that promise. And just as Abraham, we live our lives according to that promise. In chapter number 5, as we discussed the last time, we looked at the first couple of verses. 
And we found that therefore, since we have been justified by faith, three things we learned. We are justified by faith. Christ has propitiated. He has appeased the wrath of God. We were enemies of God. We were sinful. We were wicked. Judgment was due unto us and we were condemned to die. But Christ has been the propitiation. He has appeased that wrath. All of the wrath of God that was due unto us was imputed unto Christ. The condemnation fell upon his own son. And as such, his righteousness has been imputed, reckoned, given unto us. Our sin unto Christ, his righteousness unto us. So Christ is, the, or God is the just because he did not let sin slide. It was paid for, penalty paid. And he is the justifier in that he has imputed that righteousness unto us. So we know we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No more wrath upon us. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. No longer are we reprobates. No longer have we been let to live how we want to live. But now we, have, we stand presently in the grace of God. And all the things that God has allowed to give, he has given unto us. We stand in his grace. And then lastly, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Our worship has been restored. Now, it is this last phrase that the Apostle Paul expounds even further up through verse number 5. He expounds it so that there is a greater understanding of this worship, of this rejoicing that we do in hope of the glory of God. And that's what I want to speak to you today about, is this rejoicing. Now, I am uh, thrilled, always at the providence of God, when I consider the songs that were sung this morning. Uh, that was not of my doing. But when you consider, and even in the, the worship, the call to worship that was read, I did not write that. But when we consider what God has done for us, there is reason to rejoice. Okay? And that reason goes far beyond the fleshly things that God has graced us with. We can rejoice because we woke up this morning. So can the unbeliever. We can rejoice when a good report comes from the doctor. So can the unbeliever. We can rejoice when there's money in the bank account. We can rejoice when our relationships are strong and good. We can rejoice when things are going well and all of those things are granted unto us by the grace of God. Why is it by grace? Because we don't deserve anything. Mankind is deserving of condemnation. So anything good, including the breath that you just breathed, was by the grace of God. When we consider our new birth, by the grace of God. We consider his work in sanctification by the Spirit of God. It is by the grace of God. And in that, we can rejoice. We can rejoice. I want to speak to three areas based upon the scripture here as Paul expounds it. Paul speaks to three areas regarding this rejoicing. There is a, first of all, a premise to our rejoicing. There is a perseverance to our rejoicing. And there is a product of our rejoicing. I want to speak to you first regarding the premise of our rejoicing. 
He says that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That ultimately is the premise of our rejoicing. The glory of God. And it is not simply that God would be glorified. But what we find is that God is glorified as he graces us with his glory. God gave Abraham a promise that I will make of you a great nation. And Abraham believed the promise of God. He reiterated that promise to Isaac. He reiterated that promise to Jacob. I will make of you a great nation. And they believed the word of God with promise. The promise that God has given us is that he chose us before the foundation of the world that we were to be holy and blameless before him. That's the promise that has been given unto us. There is a promise of glory we need to ensure that we understand what God has promised us. And that promise is the inheritance, it is the glorification that has been given unto us. There's the promise. And as Abraham does, we live our life according to that promise. Now, I want you to be prepared. We're going to look at several pieces of Scripture. I want you to direct your prayers to Miss Newby in the back because I'm going to overwork her this morning. Now, there are times when I may reference a Scripture and not have you turn to it. But because I want us to be assured or aware or perceive or know in depth the promise that God has given us in the glory of God, I want you to turn to these scriptures. I want you to highlight. I want you to write them down. I want you to mark them. Because this is the objective of God's promise. It's a pretty big deal. So I want us to look first and foremost <clears throat> to John. Let's turn to John chapter number 17. We were there just a few moments ago. John chapter number 17. And again, as I mentioned, this is the intercessory prayer. This is the Lord's prayer. Uh, it's not the model prayer that you see in Luke 11. This is the Lord's prayer prior to his uh, crucifixion, prior to his arrest, his betrayal. As he goes off and he stands before his disciples and he prays, and he prays on their behalf. So you can understand that Christ being the Son of God, God in the flesh, always doing according to the will of God, you had better believe this prayer is in accordance with the will of God. Oh, many times when we pray, we ask amiss. This did not miss. So you can believe the prayer that Christ prays here, everything that he prays for is done. Okay? Verse number 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, and are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory, verse 22, here we go. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Already done. Already determined. The glory has already been given. It's as good as done. And just as Abraham looked at creation and knew that as God said it, he did it. As Christ has said it, it is done. The glory that has been given unto the Son has been given unto those 
who will believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a done deal. Glory. Look, if you will, to Romans chapter number 8. When you look at the epistle of Romans, chapter 8 tends to end a certain portion of the doctrinal section. Uh, there are some arguments for and against that, but you kind of see an end of a, of a statement uh, that Paul gives. And in many ways, it ties back into the beginning of Romans 5 where we are. He says, we hope in the glory of God. And then he goes through Romans chapter number 6 and talks about we don't live in sin anymore. Romans 7, we're going to continue battling it. And then Romans 8, he goes back to that same theme of you're going to be glorified. In Romans chapter number 8 and verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We are suffering in this present time. We'll get there. We are suffering in this present time. Difficulties abound. Persecutions abound. But none of that compares to what? The glory that is to be revealed to us. Okay? So again, we see this over and over again, this promise of glory. Almost like God promised it to Abraham. Then he promised it to Isaac, and then he promised it unto Jacob. Pastors used it last week, the again principle. Again. We've got to hear it over and over again. So again, we see this principle of the promise of the glorification. Let's turn one page to chapter number 8 of Romans, and I'll start reading in verse number 28. We know this verse well, and I've referenced it many times. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, what? To be conformed to the image of his son. There's the good. In context, there's the good that everything works together for. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Romans 5, 1, justified. And those whom he justified, what else happened? He glorified. Done deal. Said it. Done. In the heavenly places, we have been blessed with all things. We are citizens of another country. Glorified. God's word has said it, it will be done. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter number 3. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. 1 Peter, I'm sorry, 1 Peter. First Peter, let's look at chapter number 1. Look at down verse number, start verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Okay? So we see this glorification over and over again proclaimed. A glorification. Let's look to Hebrews chapter number 2. Hebrews chapter number 2. And verse number 10. For it was fitting that he for whom, 
and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. Bringing many sons to glory. Do you see the end state that God has promised? Are we starting to see that end state that God has promised? The premise for our rejoicing in the hope of glory is that we will be glorified. That's the promise that has been given unto us. Okay, that's the promise. We don't simply glory in the good things that happen today. Our glorying is not conditional upon our circumstances. Our glorying is in that promise that God has given us unto the glorification, unto the inheritance that God has promised. Now with that in mind, that also brings in another truth. Turn back, if you will, to Romans. Romans chapter number 5. He says that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. There is a premise to our rejoicing based upon the promise of God. But there is also a perseverance in our rejoicing. A perseverance. The word suffering there, the word suffering means uh, to press or constrain. It was a word used to describe the crushing of grapes. When we talk about suffering and persecution from suffering or, or from our belief in, in Christ, when we talk about this suffering, we're talking about a stress or a strain upon our life. We are to rejoice in these sufferings. Now, that's not an attractive message. The suffering of the servant of God. It is a message that does not like to be preached or proclaimed from many evangelical pulpits today. Many times we limit the health and prosperity and wealth gospel to preachers that you see on TV with a large following and millions of dollars in their own bank account. And they twist and turn the promise of God away from that ultimate glorification to having your best life now. Okay? That's why I want us to know the premise of our rejoicing. Okay, the true promise that God has given us. Because the truth is, we will suffer. Christ himself said, you will be hated for my namesake. They hated me, they will hate you also. Okay? So there will be suffering. There will be suffering. That is not a popular message today. That doesn't attract many people. And in the case of Christ in John chapter number 6, it turned thousands and thousands away, leaving him with just a handful. Yet, this is the promise that we preach. There will be sufferings. There will be sufferings. Now, Let's look at some of these sufferings that just a promise that you know there's going to be there. Let's once again look at several scripture. Matthew chapter number 5. Matthew chapter number 5. When you look at Matthew 5, some of you may have a red letter Bible, I don't know. You look at Matthew 5, you find this to be the Sermon on the Mount, the very beginning. And the Beatitudes are given by Christ. In verse number 10, there is a very specific beatitude. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. What does blessed mean? It means happy. It means happy, content, joyous, rejoicing. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So, for so they persecuted the prophets who, before you, who were before you. So there is suffering that is to come that he promises. Let's look to Acts chapter number 5 verse 41. Here you have Peter and the apostles being cast into prison and then later being beaten and being charged not to speak in the name of Jesus. And in verse 41 it says, They left the presence of the council rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That doesn't sound like a very promising health and welfare and prosperity gospel. That you're going to be beaten and persecuted for the name of Christ and cast into prison, even crucified, sawn asunder, beheaded. Let's look to 2 Corinthians chapter number 12, verse 9. We understand and know the story of the thorn in the flesh of Paul. And Paul prayed three times with the Lord that it would leave him. At verse 9 he says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Okay? It's in those times of suffering that the power of God is prevalent and shown. Let's look at uh, one more scripture. Philippians chapter number 1 verse 29. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29. When you read Philippians, and I like to give a little bit of touch when I read these Verses, not just to read them and read them and read them. But when you read Philippians, understand it was written from prison. One of the prison epistles. And I believe it's 16 times he uses the word in those few chapters to rejoice. Joy. And he writes here in verse number 29, he says, For it has been granted to you, put your finger on that word granted, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer. For his sake. Granted to you. That means it was given unto you. It's a gift. Have you ever considered that? That the suffering you endure for the sake of Christ was a gift given unto you? Oh, we like to say, well, that's just the burden I bear. That's just the cross I bear. It's a gift. And let me tell you something, when somebody gives me a gift, I rejoice. And when someone gives me the gift, when God grants me to be persecuted, to suffer for his name, I see it as a gift. And I am to rejoice in it. James goes on to say, count it all joy. When you fall into diverse temptations, count it all joy. So what we find here is we glory in the promise that God has given us. That's our premise of glorification. That's why we glory. And we glory also in sufferings. In sufferings. Now that leads us to a great understanding that I want you to grab hold of. Turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter number 3. Hebrews chapter number 3. This is the text that we looked at in our men's class this morning. Hebrews chapter number 3. And I will not go through all six verses. 
But I want to look at the last two, verse 5 and verse 6 of Hebrews chapter number 3. Hebrews chapter number 3, verses 5 and 6. Now to give you again a little bit of context here. The writer of Hebrews is proclaiming throughout the entire epistle the supremacy of Christ. He is writing to a Jewish community. Within that community there are some who are true believers, but yet they have a tendency to fall back into Judaistic practices of the law. Okay? There are those within that community, that Jewish community, that understand, have a working knowledge of Jesus Christ, his person, and his works, and believe it to be true, but have not surrendered themselves unto Christ as Lord. And then there are those within that Jewish community that are simply unbelievers. So as he's writing this epistle unto the Hebrews, you have to keep that in mind. In this section, he is writing to Jewish believers. Jewish believers that have a tendency to fall back into those Judaistic practices, either by pressure to compromise, lack of understanding of the grace of God. They have a tendency to fall back into their old ways. I said to the men this morning, uh, we are, don't find ourselves as being Jewish Christians. I don't know of anyone here uh, who was a, is a Jewish person who is a believer in Christ. Uh, but we do find ourselves falling back into legalistic practices. And in essence, falling into some type of externalism. Okay? Look good, smell good, sound good, taste good. You must be good. I think Deion Sanders had something like that he used to say all the time. Behavior modification, behavior change, and not a change of the heart which is only possible by the Spirit of God. Take out the heart of stone and put into them a heart of flesh. Change comes from the inside out, not the outside in. But you had believers that were falling back into those externalisms, those legalists, those Judaistic behaviors. And he's making the argument here that Jesus is better than Moses. Moses, of course, being highly exalted in the Jewish community. He was the deliverer of Israel. He was the one who wrote the law, wrote the first five books of the law of, of, of the Old Testament. He was one, most importantly, that had a face-to-face -face with God. Face-to-face -face with God. That puts him up there. But even as wonderful as the attributes of Moses were, the writer of Hebrews is simply placing Christ superior to Moses. Okay? He says that Moses was an, ap was an apostle. He was. He was one that had a face-to-face -face and then was sent. But he was not the high priest. Christ was better. Christ was both. And then he says that Moses was a servant in the household. Okay? A good servant. A faithful servant. But we find that Christ was the son. Look at verse 5. He says, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Okay? He was faithful in overseeing the economy, the house rule of the nation of Israel. He was faithful in it. Doesn't mean he was perfect, but he was faithful in holding the priests accountable, holding the people accountable, leading the people, directing the people, discipling the people, disciplining the people, motivating the people, providing for the people as God's will was to be done. He was a faithful servant. And this was to testify to things that were to be spoken. He was a type of Christ. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Now there's a difference. He says Moses was a servant, but Christ was a son. The big difference there is this. The servanthood of Moses ended. He died. And his uh, commission to oversee, to be a steward over the house of God ended. And even while he was the steward over the house of God, there were some ups and downs in there with Moses. But with Christ, 
He's the son. It doesn't end. The servanthood of Moses ended, but the sonship of Christ continues on through all eternity. There is a continuance there. There's nothing that ceases his sonship, his oversight, his rule of the house of God. Holding that in mind. And we are his house. Not the building. Not the building. We, the people, those who believe the holy brethren, as he says in verse 1, we are the household of God. And Christ has oversight, rule over us. To make sure that the sacrifice, his priesthood is set. To ensure we are encouraged. To ensure that we are uh, disciplined. That we are corrected, that we are chastened, that we are directed, all under the rule of Christ. And we are his house. If, if, here's how you know whether you're in the house or not. Drum roll, please. If indeed we hold fast. Secure, persevere in securing, to grasp hold of, and don't let go. Our confidence, that is our boldness to speak, to cry out. Our boasting, the glory that is the premise of our rejoicing. If we hold fast to our confidence, speaking forth, the praises of God and our boasting in our hope. One of the great tests of whether you are a child of God or not is how continual is your rejoicing. Because if it's not continual, if it only comes in the good times, if it only comes when there's money in the account, when the health is good, when you had a, quote, good service at church, if it only comes sometimes, you're like Moses. Probably a pretty good person, but not continual. But if you rejoice all the time, in the suffering, in the difficult days, that lends proof to your sonship, to your place in the household of God. Because you are partaking, you have fellowship in the person of Christ. And as Christ was continual in his service as a son, we as believers will be continual in our service in giving praise unto God regardless of the circumstances. Hmm. Examine yourself, Paul writes to the church at Corinth. Test yourself. When do you rejoice? That, that, that's me included, by the way. We walk around, we all, I mean, I understand, listen. Let's, let's give a little Joseph here. I got Joseph on the back of my mind all week last week. The stocks that Joseph's feet were in when he was in prison, they hurt. They did. The stocks that Paul's feet were in when he was in prison with Silas, not comfortable at all. The beatings that they took did not feel good. But yet they rejoiced in the promise of God unconditionally. Life is going to hurt. And that don't mean you walk around all stoic. Stoic means just nothing affects you. You're just saying, you even Stephen. You just even kill all the time. Doesn't mean you're stoic. Listen, things hurt. Divorce hurts. 
Wayward children hurt. Challenges in your family hurt. Illness hurts. Financial difficulty, all of these things hurt. Persecution for the sake of Christ (laughs) is going to hurt. When your wife leaves you because of your faith, when your children rebel against you because of your faith, when your co-workers uh, laugh at you and, and, and ridicule you because of your faith, it's going to hurt. So I'm not saying it's not going to hurt. And I'm not saying you're not going to cry. But you are going to rejoice when like Peter and the apostles You find yourself worthy to partake in the suffering of Jesus Christ. Back to Romans. Back to Romans, chapter number 5. He says we rejoice in our sufferings. Let me just say a little bit about that word in. Sometimes we skip over those little prepositions. I want to make sure I touch on this. That is not rejoicing in the midst of of our sufferings, okay? Um, That's not rejoicing uh, in the state of our sufferings. We're hurting and we're in pain and persecution, but yet I rejoice. It is rejoicing in the sufferings themselves. It's rejoicing because of the sufferings. Because you see yourself as counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. And here's why we can rejoice in our sufferings. We have a premise of our rejoicing, the glorification of God. We have a perseverance in our suffering, not just in the good times, or the premise of our rejoicing, not just in the good times, but our suffering as well. We also have a product of our rejoicing. Notice, chapter 5 and verse number 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing, knowing, we have an understanding. This is just a given knowledge, a given truth. It's something that he expected them to know. I believe there are certain things within Scripture that we are just expected to know and we don't know them. You see that same, by the way. Let me just flash ahead to this. Miss Newby, you don't have to go there. But in chapter number 6, you see this in verse number uh, 3. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized unto Christ Jesus were baptized unto his death? That was just an expected knowledge. When someone came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you were baptized into him. No water there. But you were baptized into Christ. You were united with him. You died, you were buried, and you rose again. So you're no longer living to the old man. You are now living unto obedience in Christ. That was just common knowledge he expected. See the same overtone here. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. There are some products or is a product to our rejoicing. Because suffering produces endurance. Endurance is long-suffering, patience. Okay, It produces, our uh, rejoicing produces, or, or excuse me, our knowing that suffering produces endurance. Suffering brings about cause and effect When you suffer, the end fruit of that suffering is going to be endurance, okay? And you may ask, how is it that our suffering brings about endurance or long-suffering or patience, okay? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. So let's go to James chapter number 1, James 1 verse 12. James 1, verse 12. To give you a little bit about James, it is believed that the epistle of James was the first uh, epistle written. Not Matthew, because we think it's up front. Uh, James. And we're talking about the first church. 
Okay, you want to talk about, you've you got a whole new thing starting here? Trying to figure out what you're doing, how you're doing, what direction you're doing, and trying to pull people out of Judaism? Boy, James had his hands full. All the elders of the church at Jerusalem had their hands full. And you see that throughout James. There's a lot of bickering and fighting and warring amongst the members about what is right and what is wrong. What there is no New Testament. I say there's a possibility that, you know, maybe Matthew's might have been written, but there's no, all the other Gospels, Paul's writings hadn't come about. So there's a lot of questioning about what's right and what's wrong. Okay? So there is a lot of persecution there. And he says in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Okay? Standing fast, being proved, being proved. When we talk about in, in, a, in or excuse me, in, in endurance, okay? We talk about endurance. We're talking about a long-suffering, a patience. When we hurt, okay, we are drawn to Christ. Consider. We are depraved, okay? By nature, dead, depraved. It is only, as Paul writes in Romans 3, as we recognize that our Rituals mean nothing. Our good works mean nothing. We are not righteous. We are lost. We are uh, scattered about. We don't fear God and we stand before God helpless that we turn unto Him. It is when we are suffering, when we are suffering, that we turn unto Christ. When we suffer, when we're persecuted, our weaknesses, our humanity is exposed. And when our humanity is exposed, we, by nature of the sons of God, turn unto Him. So our sufferings produce endurance. A long-suffering, a patience. As we turn unto Christ, we are patient knowing that his promises are true. And that endurance produces character, spoken of by James. As we are tested more and more, as we turn to Christ more and more, what we find is that we are proven, that's the word character there, more and more. Like gold in fire, Peter talks about. We're proven more and more. We prove the faithfulness of Christ in our sufferings, and our faith grows accordingly. Though suffering produces endurance, the endurance produces that character, that proving, and then that character produces hope. Because we recognize this, It is all based not upon me, but it is based upon Christ. The closer we are drawn to Christ in our sufferings, the more we are proved and examined and tried, the more we recognize that it is Christ in which our faith rests and not upon our own ability on our own ways, much like Abraham in chapter number 4. He believed the word of God. He was fully convinced that what God said was true. And even though he suffered, and even though the conditions didn't meet sometimes the expectations, he was no longer believing in his own self, but believing in the word and the ability of God. So what we find as we follow this link, our sufferings, Lead to long-suffering and patience because we're drawn to Christ. Our endurance leads us to character, approving of Christ, which leads us to a hope in Christ. Therefore, we rejoice in the sufferings 
because in the end they lead us to a greater hope in Jesus Christ and a greater certainty in our salvation. And that hope, verse number 5, does not put us to shame. Now what that means is there's not, there's not going to come a time where you're like, ooh, man, I wish I hadn't believed that. Oh, he failed me there. We put our hope in a lot of things here. We put our hope in football teams and presidents and mayors and politicians. And we put our hope in pastors. And we put our hope in a lot of different things, methods and programs. We put our businesses. We put our hopes in a lot of things. But in those things in which we hope in in this world, they eventually crumble and fall. But when our hope is in Jesus Christ, who is eternal, who is God, when our hope is in Him, it does not crumble. It does not fall. And therefore, we, we are not going to come to the point that, I wish I had a rooted for the other team. I wish I had a voted for that guy instead of that guy. Our hope is in the eternal one. Our hope is in Christ. And it doesn't put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Why do we hope? And why does that hope not put us to shame? Why do we have certainty in that hope of Christ? In the person of Christ. Why do we rejoice? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Here's what that means. Don't just skip over that. Poured into our hearts. God's unconditional love has been poured into our inner being. Our minds were once depraved and could not understand. But now the love of God has come into our minds and given us understanding. Our hearts, our affections, what we strove after, what we sought was not God but our own things of our own making. But God's love has been poured into our heart that our affections have now changed. Where we once hated God and created gods of our own making, we now strive after God, seeking His pleasure. Where we, our wills, were once turned against God, to be as enemies to God, to be reprobates, God's love has now been poured into our hearts to will and to do what God has called us to do. Our entire being is new. And the only way that happens is by the love of God. Our minds are new. Our hearts are new. Our will is new. And that is only by the will of God because we couldn't change it ourselves. And because the love of God has been given unto us, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, when did that happen? At regeneration, at the new birth, when we were born of God, He gave us understanding that we might see our sin and see Christ. He gave us a new heart of flesh that our affections would be drawn under the person and work of Christ. He gave us a new will that we might be obedient under the call and the command of God. Before we were in bondage, we could do none of those things. But only because of his love wherewith he loved us do we now, by the Spirit of God, know him, love him, and be obedient to him. And that was given to us at regeneration. And because of that love that we have toward him, and the understanding we have toward him, and the obedience we have toward him, we can rejoice. We know, we know that God is sovereign over all. And we know that what God has said, He will do. The only way we know that is because the love of God has been poured into our hearts. Therefore, 
we believe, and therefore we rejoice. Because of our faith that God has given us, we are justified. We've been declared righteous. And as such, we have peace with God. We are no more enemies with God. But Christ has appeased the wrath of God. We have access to the grace in which we stand by faith. Everything we have is by grace and we have access unto it. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But that rejoicing is not just in the good. We rejoice in the suffering. Not in the midst of. Not in spite of. But we rejoice in those sufferings. Because we know those sufferings are going to lead us to a hope that's not going to disappoint us. It's going to lead us to a hope and a reminder of who Christ is. And the only way we know that is because his love's been given to us. Our minds have changed, our hearts have changed, our will has changed. That's the only way we know who Christ is and can have that hope and rejoice in him. So my question to you this morning is this. Number one, do you know the promise that God has given? Number two, are you rejoicing in that promise? Are you rejoicing in that promise regardless of the circumstances? Because if you are, you can know that the love of God has been poured into your heart. And that you are a child of God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father. Lord, search our hearts this morning. Lord, we are dependent upon you to give wisdom and understanding.